as a brief way of introduction, in case you might have slipped in a little later, as I like to do myself sometimes, uh, my name is Rich Brown, and I serve as a pastor here in the Blue Ridge Presbytery. Um, and again, this is my home church. But beyond all those things, uh, what I'm most excited about is the fact that we get to look at the Word of God together this morning. And that, I believe, is uh, the highest privilege and honor um, that I have this morning before you all, is just being able to open up the Word of God and deliver his word to you all from the Gospel of Luke. Now, as we come to the reading of God's word, I'd like to draw our attention specifically to Luke 2, verses 21 through 35. And yes, you heard that correctly. It is, again, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I know Brian uh, mentioned last week that we might be away from Luke for a while, uh, but that was just a joke. Uh, We're actually back in it this morning. And uh, I know you all have been traversing the ocean depths of Luke over the past year now, all throughout 2021. So you might be wondering, you know, why are we going all the way back to Luke chapter 2? You might be thinking, of course, well, of course, it's the nativity scene. is, you know, uh, the, the uh, reason for celebrating Christmas is right here in front of us. But to catch us by surprise a little bit, intentionally I chose the passage immediately following from that. <laughs> when Christ is presented at the temple. So why this passage in particular? Well, I believe that this passage in particular where Christ is presented at the temple in verses 21 through 35, provide us with a unique aspect of the gospel this Christmas that we don't often uh, focus upon. This aspect of the gospel that goes beyond the nativity scene itself, it goes beyond the scene of the shepherds and the wise men and the stories that we can even picture in our own mind's eye. And it focuses upon a certain nuance that we are sometimes prone to overlook when we consider Christmas itself and Christ coming to earth. And that central gospel truth that I want us to uh, zoom in upon in this morning's text is nothing less than this truth, that God is not only willing, but he is able to step into the mess of our lives. Again, God is not only willing, but able to step into the mess of our lives. And so if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke 2.21. You can also find this passage uh, in your bulletin as well in front of you. And I'd like to invite you to hear the timeless, authoritative, and inspired word of God this morning. Luke 2.21. Beginning here, the word of God says this. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, that is Jesus, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, following. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of God given to us in love, forever faithful and true. And with that in mind, dear friends, let's go ahead and come before our Father in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that as we have read your word, we know that it is powerful and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing through our own souls and dividing each of those members within ourselves, striking us to the core. And yet in the same way as a doctor would bring a scalpel to a patient, you use it to heal us. You use it to curate us all the more into the image of Christ. So we ask God that through this reading of your word and now through the preaching of your word that you would be honored and magnified that I simply, as the messenger this morning, would get out of the way and that Christ Jesus would be exalted. We ask that he would be front and centered in our message this morning, that he would be exalted and lifted on high, for that is all due him. So we pray all this in your holy name, O Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, friends, the late Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle, who I imagine many of you might be familiar with, has a wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And J.C. Ryle's commentary is about three inches wide, Uh, this huge commentary, just packed with pastoral nuances. And I had the joy of reading over it a little bit the past couple weeks in preparation for this message. But he makes a curious point, this this theologian, pastor, J.C. Ryle, in regard to Uh, the very first verse here, this idea of the naming conventions of that own day. See, we know that names themselves are loaded with meaning, and even though in our own culture we might not uh, seem to put as much emphasis on certain names, in that culture here in Luke 2, names meant everything about the child, about the parents, about those around him. And I love the way that J.C. Ryle in his commentary describes it And to paraphrase, he essentially puts it this way, that Christ himself could have been given so many appropriate names, fitting names, names regarding his divinity as king or ruler, as prophet or priest or judge. And yet here in verse 21, right off the bat, we see Christ named Jesus, Savior, the one who saves us from our sin. But why the name Jesus? Have you ever thought about that yourself? Why not having to do with something having to do with his kingship or rulership? Why him as our savior? Well, this name above all else rightfully names Jesus and ascribes to him these wonderful attributes that are just brimming with the gospel hope. Attributes of his regarding his mercy, his grace, his willingness to help us in our deepest and most utter afflictions, 
and his deliverance of us from our sins to the uttermost. And so this morning, I want us to see in our message two key and vital aspects of Jesus as our Savior. Namely, that he was appointed for us, which we'll see in verses 21 through 24, and also that he was sacrificed for us in verses 25 through 35. First, let's go ahead and look in upon this text here in verses 21 through 24 in this first point that I've entitled, uh, Appointed for Us. Jesus appointed for us. If you look again with me at verse 21, it says this, and at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now the reason why I'm calling this an appointment of sorts, even a divine appointment, is that in the original Greek language, this phrase, at the end of eight days, actually includes the word for fulfillment. And I wouldn't dare pronounce it in front of you all in case I butcher the pronunciation of the word, but it literally means fulfillment. And this word fulfillment in verse 21 is picked up again immediately in verse 22. This idea of him fulfilling something. And furthermore, the concept of Christ actively fulfilling all that he had come to do is nuanced throughout the remainder of our text. Now, this idea of fulfillment is admittedly hard to translate into our English language, and so that's why the ESV and some other translations don't have the word fulfillment in it. But if you were to woodenly translate uh, verses 21 and 22 out of the Greek into English, the phrases would actually go something like this. When the eight days to circumcise him were fulfilled. And verse 22, when the days of their cleansing were fulfilled. Again, we don't see the word fulfilled here, but it is right there in the original text. And that idea has this nuance of being rushed or hurried. The events here in this passage, in other words, were time sensitive. They had to happen exactly when they did and by whom they were accomplished by. They had to be fulfilled by Christ and Christ alone. So what was Jesus fulfilling exactly, even here as an eight-day-old in verse 21 and as a 40-day-old baby in verses 22 and following? And what was the meaning behind his circumcision earlier that we saw and even his cleansing as well in the preceding verses? Well, I think these are such important questions for us to answer this morning in order to understand what is actually going on at a deeper level in our passage. And thankfully, Luke, the gospel writer, makes it all too abundantly clear to us right here in the text itself. In fact, he even gives away the answer in verse 23. If you look at verse 23 with me, it says this, that essentially he was cleansed in accordance with this, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And in verse 24, it goes on to say that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in particular to do what? to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, as it says. And so in effect, we see Mary and Joseph publicly attending to the ceremonies and sacrifices that God had given to ancient Israel. But deeper than just that, deeper than just rote ritualism or obedience, we see them essentially publicly 
before all the company there at the temple their own need for cleansing and a right standing before God himself. And essentially not any need within Jesus himself. See, theirs here, Mary and Joseph, their act is an act of faith toward God in the exercise of obedience. Specifically, as a result of the commands given by God to Israel in Exodus uh, 13, verse 1, and also Leviticus 12, verse 8. But what's curious is that their obedience as believers under the old covenant stood at this time in Israel in stark contrast to perhaps the majority, speculatively speaking, perhaps the majority of those in Israel who just paid lip service to God himself It didn't truly trust in the coming Messiah. See, many in Israel at that point in time had either forsaken God, their God, or adulterated, even worse, his covenantal obligations. Men of power and persuasion had arisen up in their midst, let alone public uh, people such as King Herod and others that we read of earlier in the Gospel of Luke. But men such as the Sadducees and Pharisees had arisen up amongst them even in their own religious worship. And they allowed such things to happen. Men who either liberalized or legalized the one true faith and perverted it in one way or the other. But nevertheless, we see here in the text, implicitly speaking, the kind and gracious favor of God upon Mary and Joseph as those who had faith in him. And in obedience, they offered up Christ at the temple. See, like Abraham, many hundreds of years before them, like Abraham offering up Isaac, his firstborn son, or like Hannah offering up Samuel to the priestly ordinances, as we read earlier in 1 Samuel 2 this morning, Mary and Joseph, in the same way, offered up Christ to God himself, their firstborn son, the eternal son of God. But something so much more grand than just a simple act of obedience is actually on display here. See, in their ordinary obedience to the precepts of God, we see all the more brightly the magnificence of Christ Jesus begin to shine. How so? Well, through what Christ was accomplishing even here in his infancy, Again, as an eight-day-old in verse 21, as a 40-day-old infant in the following verses, we see him begin to shine forth a light that would pierce the darkness of our own fallen human condition. See, in essence, Christ's presentation at the temple here in Jerusalem is just the beginning of what theologians call the active obedience of Christ in our stead. In other words, the fact that Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled every last part of the law of God for us in spite of our own failure to keep it and to maintain it. And so, as then to attribute his perfect righteousness, even his perfect obedience of the law, then to us who receive it in faith. And of course, the scriptures allude to this over and over and over again, but even right here in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 1, verse 1, it alludes to this act of obedience of Christ. See, Luke, the Gospel writer, in verse 1 of this Gospel message, begins by referring to the sum total of Christ's life, death, 
and resurrection as being what he accomplished for us or fulfilled for us. But with that in mind, though, there are so many ways that we could misinterpret this passage, aren't there? See, we could easily, at this time of the year especially, elevate Mary and Joseph as these wonderful examples of parents who obeyed the law of God. And in effect, we would be exalting their reliance upon the grace of God at the expense of Christ's obedience. We could also err on the other side of things, though, by essentially thinking that Christ needed to undergo cleansing for his own sake. But if we were to do that, we would be neglecting his deity and sinlessness in thinking such thoughts. Rather, what Christ was doing was all along, again, even as a child, as an infant lowly, he was being consecrated at the temple, the center of God's covenantal dealings with his people, all for your sake and for mine. Now, this is all astounding, isn't it? When you really begin to fathom the depth of this kind of sovereign condescension to us, the king of glory humbling himself for us, in light of his matchless power and his divine relationship eternally to God the Father as the eternal son, he chose to be numbered amongst every other Jewish firstborn male undergoing that same sign and that same procedure of purification. He willingly, lovingly stepped into the mundanity and even the murkiness of our own lives in order to fulfill all righteousness. It says the 19th century Christmas hymn puts it, he who is rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became poor. That's what we see him doing here, identifying with the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. See, in verse 24, we are reminded of even this humble condescension, specifically of Christ for us. Luke notes that Mary and Joseph brought either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons to be sacrificed, in accordance with Leviticus 12, verse 8, especially. One animal being designated as a burnt sacrifice and the other animal being designated as a sin offering. But if you were to flip back to Leviticus 12, or if you're already familiar with it yourselves, the laws and the customs of that day, you'd probably know and you'd see quickly by reading it that Leviticus 12 actually provides that provision of two small birds in lieu of a lamb for those who are too poor to afford a spotless year-old perfect, quote-unquote, lamb. But friends, in this way, we begin to see the majesty of God all the more. See, in our own impoverished ability to meet the law of God, the gospel tells us that God graciously has provided the way in himself. And even figuratively speaking, here in this passage, the sacrificial lamb that would have been required of Mary and Joseph is not altogether absent, is it? They might not have brought an actual lamb, but figuratively speaking, Christ, the Lamb of God, the sinless lamb, perfect lamb, was appointed to meet the demands of the law, to atone for us, to cover us, to cleanse us. 
It's as Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tell us later in Paul's words, Christ was born of woman under the law to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. And so church, do you see the heart of God on display for you in this passage even? This Jesus who is both the wonderful counselor and the almighty God is also for you who are in Christ by faith, the prince of peace and the one who has made peace by the shedding of his own blood, even prefigured here. He is the only one who in fact could make that peace between us and the holy God. And his sacrificial death for our sake is again witnessed here in advance for the first time as Christ is presented in the arms of Mary and Joseph like a silent lamb led to the temple for the very first time. Well, friends, this brings us to the second point of our passage, the fact that Christ Jesus was sacrificed for us. And we'll see this in the following verses of verses 25 through 35. Here in verse 25, we begin to see a stark contrast, though, in the narrative itself. See, in the Greek, the sentence begins not with uh, what we see here in the ESV, the word now, but actually with the Greek word edu, meaning behold. And Luke, the gospel writer, loved to use that word. He used it oftentimes earlier on in Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel first appeared to Mary, and Elizabeth earlier. And he even used it earlier as well in Luke 2, behold, when the angels appeared, you know, behold, we bring you tidings of great joy. However, the gospel writer Luke intentionally used this word here to showcase the flowing movement of God's redemption and his plan of redemption as it was unfolding before the lives of his people. For instance, here he uses it to showcase a movement that we're about to see, moving from this focus on consecration or appointment even to the idea of sacrifice. And Luke, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does it by introducing Simeon here into the mix. Behold, here comes Simeon. Now, if you look at the text with me, how is Simeon himself described? Well, he's described as being a righteous man, one who was devout, a man who was waiting for the consolation or the peace or encouragement or wholeness of Israel. See, like Abraham and every other Old Testament believer before Simeon, he was justified by faith in God and considered righteous by God as a result. And that's why the text calls him such, righteous, devout. But this word devout is not altogether that common in the New Testament. In fact, Luke seems to use it more often than any others. He uses it a handful of times in the Gospel of Luke and also in Acts throughout But I've noticed in my own studies that more often than not, whenever Luke uses this word devout to describe someone, especially new on the scene like Simeon, he uses it to describe a stark contrast between him, someone considered godly, and those who are on the outside looking in, those who are ungodly, those who are perverse or profane. And as such, I believe Luke, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, intentionally uses this word to contrast Simeon from the people around him. And it reminds us of this beautiful truth that even when sin is at its darkest, God always 
He always has and always will maintain a remnant. Those whom he has called to himself, even in the midst of utter darkness and deep sin in the land. The Lord will always safeguard that remnant as well in the midst of the darkest of seasons and times. Like Lot in the midst of Sodom or Daniel in the heart of Babylon or Jeremiah in the courts of King Zedekiah, the Lord will always maintain witness of his power and of his glory. Friends, do you believe that he is doing the same even now in our own land? Now, I can imagine that I'm not alone in honestly grieving the current state of our own nation. Over the past few years, even over the past generation or so, we have become increasingly antagonistic, by and large, people against the bride of Christ. And yet none of this is a surprise to God. It can be so difficult to maintain a sense of hope-filled optimism in the midst of what we perceive to be a darkening over our own land here in the States to the neglect of the truth that the Lord will and always has protected us. But know this, come whatever may, come whatever trials or tribulations uh, come up against us, the church, the bride of Christ in the years to come, no matter how difficult it might be to worship or to worship even freely at that, know that the word of the Lord will continue to go forth and bear fruit in exactly the way that he has appointed. Even to be a little personal with you all, uh, as I've experienced changes in my own life over the past couple months and experienced some of the uh, realities of this culture against we who are believers in Christ. I can't tell you how thankful I am for this church and what a wonderful witness you all are of the faithfulness of God in Christ to his people. For Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as a result, he who is with us, the same always and forever, is the one to whom we are to give our praise, and rightfully so. But coming back to the text now, and considering the darkness in the land at that time, this figurative darkness, if you will, was actually the immediate historic context going on here in Luke 2. Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, verse 2, even prophesied as much of this generation of people in Luke 2. You may recall the famous passage that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On them, the light has shone. And in direct fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 3, we see here a beginning of the answer, God's answer to this darkness that through this Christ whom Simeon was about to see and take up in his own arms, through this Christ, God would indeed multiply his people and increase their joy <clears throat> and divide amongst them the spoils of his victory soon to come in the years to follow. Look with me again, if you will, at uh, Luke 2.27, though. <clears throat> see, here we see <clears throat> Simeon enter into the temple in spite of all obstacles, <laughs> filled with the hope of God's peace in sight. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Now, it seems apparent that as soon as he saw Jesus, the Spirit confirmed in his own soul that this was the Messiah of whom he was long expecting, long waiting for, the one who would indeed bring peace to Israel. And this Messiah, as evidence before his eyes, was already beginning to accomplish the beginning of the law concerning him. And so what does he do? He gleefully picks up this child into his arms, blesses God, and pours forth this beautiful epitaph that we see here in verses 29 through 32. He says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, Jesus, Savior, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So what did Simeon see in Christ exactly? So many things. First, he arguably saw many prophecies being fulfilled right there again in his own sight. For instance, Isaiah 7, 14, in which it tells us a virgin would in fact be with child. And she would bear a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us. And here, Jesus, just days before, was named Jesus, essentially declaring to us that God is with us. And this Jesus Simeon saw was not just born miraculously of a virgin, but also to fulfill all righteousness and all prophetic mysteries concerning the Messiah that he was waiting for. So I can't imagine how enthusiastic Simeon would have been in this moment to finally see with his own eyes and with certainty his Savior in the flesh. And so with utter confidence, he testified by the Spirit that his own eyes had indeed seen the Lord's salvation, a light that would reveal God to the watching world and reveal the coming glory to God's people, the glory of blamelessness and perfection and true purification that those who followed the Lord longed for. can imagine as the, uh, the kids say nowadays, I was a youth pastor for a couple of years, but as the kids say nowadays, he would have been absolutely hyped you know, to see all these things coming to fruition. But beyond all the absolute hype that Simeon was experiencing, there is one thing above all else that is perhaps, perhaps most curious about this prophetic witness that he then makes here in our text. See, Simeon boldly proclaimed this curious statement that God had prepared this child, to be the salvation for his people. In other words, God was the one who was willfully stepping into the mess of his people in love. And this news was nothing short of marvelous. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure, as Isaiah 25 verse 1 says, were now being revealed to Simeon and then to Mary and Joseph and to all who would believe in this moment. The God who had promised to swallow up death forever in his own self had sent his son in the fullness of time in the flesh to accomplish so great a salvation. And Joseph and Mary were just stunned, silent, marveling at this magnificent display of God's power. But in the midst of all the marveling, Simeon turned aside to Mary in particular and said to her these sobering words that we see in verses 34 and 35. 
He says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And the real kicker, and a sword will pierce through, through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, <clears throat> time would certainly fail us to unpack all of the rising and the falling of Israel that was uh, prophesied here. And so I'll leave it to my friend Brian to uh, explain later at a later time for you all. <laughs> Just kidding. But um, I believe that, that there's something simple here going on. As he talks about the rising and the falling of those who are in Israel. And there's something that is so key and pivotal to our understanding of this. See, just as the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, just as he separated out the light from the darkness, from the ocean from the sky, the sun from the moon, and even man whom he made in his own image and likeness out of the dust of the earth, so we as new creations in Christ would be those who are made by the Spirit in Christ. The truth is that we are those who do not belong to this world. We are a new creation. We are those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, out of spiritual death and into the newness of Christ's life, out from under the curse of the law into the joy of eternal life secured and offered to us in Christ Jesus. But what was the tool of all this separation? The tool of separating us as new creations. Well, it was nothing short of what Isaiah, or rather Simeon, prophesied. As he put it, it was a sign that is opposed. The cross. As we're about to sing after this, we'll sing the wonderful Christmas hymn, What Child Is This? And if you pay attention carefully to the words, there is a wonderful line that says this, that nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, then the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. See, that is what is going on here in this text. In fact, that hymn comes right from this text. For all who are in Christ, he is proved here to us to be the sure sanctuary and safe shelter for our souls, as Isaiah 8.14 tells us. But there's a word of warning here as well. See, for all those who are not in Christ, Christ is indeed a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme later on in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he says that Christ crucified, Christ upon the cross, is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Christ in his sacrificial death for us would effectively work salvation for all who have faith in him. And that is the hope that we can cling to this Christmas. See, his righteous obedience of the law, perfectly obeyed and fulfilled in himself, would be attributed to us. We who by faith and humble reliance upon him turn from our sin and call upon him for salvation. Jesus, Savior. But again, a word of warning. Those who do not call upon the name of Jesus are those who are left standing on their own failed merits of God, or before God, rather. 
Accordingly so, many have already and many will continue to rise and fall at the coming of this king. Friends, where do you land in relation to this king? What are the thoughts from your own hearts being revealed or exposed as the word of God is preached over you and the gospel is shared? Perhaps recent events in your own life have tested your faith like never before. Perhaps the trials of living under certain restrictions have displaced you and caused you to be, to be isolated in this season, the last year or two. Perhaps you are approaching Christmas this year with growing concerns over family relationships and the reopening of yet still healing wounds. Whatever the case might be, if you are in Christ, there is a hope that supersedes all of this, isn't there? It's not to diminish those things as real and as deep as they are, but there is a hope that we can certainly still cling to in the midst of these things. See, he who guards his people, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, he is the one who will never let your foot be moved. He is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, Savior, we ask that you would pilot us into the new year ahead of us. As we come to the end of this year, 2021, and coming out of even two years of um, much hardship that I imagine all of us have faced in various ways, whether uh, seemingly light or very heavy, we know that in the midst of these things, you are our perfect and matchless Savior. Not only who has fulfilled the law on our behalf and who has given us your perfect righteousness, but the one who attends us and walks with us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that as we um, begin to just be in awe and wonder over you and as we celebrate Christmas together as families and friends this coming week, that we would have this dear and hope-filled message just seeded into our hearts that you are indeed with us and that you have willfully and lovingly stepped into the mess of our lives and that we have unbridled fellowship with you as a result. By faith in you, knowing your love and grace every day. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would continue to be honored and magnified in our worship as we, uh, as we begin to go our separate ways. But we ask that, above all else, your word would continue to bear fruit in our own hearts and that you would be honored and glorified. We pray this in your holy name.